Blog Talk Radio. So 
I thank them for having me there. And we're fortunate enough. Let me let me check our computers. If we're fortunate enough, I know we should have our minister of politics, brother Light on, but to also have um a young phenom freedom fighter. The sister was the um one of the hosts. She, you know, emceed the thing. She directed the thing. I was re- really impressed with her. Uh, and I would like to talk to her because she said some things that I think that we could really get into as African people here in America. The sister is a Boricua. She is a Puerto Rican, but acknowledges her African descent, uh, descendants, and I believe she said Tano. I don't want to she, – she would have to go into it, how they try um, this identity thing. And, and, and But one of the reasons I wanted to go into it is because – it is so similar to us as Africans here in America who have a variety of ethnicities, who have the African here in America who finds themselves having a mixed ancestry, and how our Puerto Rican brothers and sisters have embraced this and found a niche for it, where it isn't into conflict, it doesn't conflict with who they're trying to become or what they're trying to accomplish, but how they have incorporated all these particular identities and all of these cultural experiences, whether traumatic, whether they were harsh. I mean, we're talking about, she and I briefly touched on the slave thing, how the Spaniards first came and um, oppressed the inhabitants, the, the natives of the island, and then brought the Africans there and enslaved them. And there again, you had the whole breeding process start over again, that how they embraced these things, acknowledged them, and have cultivated them into an identity, and that identity being an identity that is for the liberation, the advancement, and the freedom and independence of the of, of Puerto Rico. Also, you know, we talk on, I wish I would have gotten his brother's number, another young phenom in there, um, Puerto Rican brother, Brother Khalil. I can't remember his last name. And, and, and this is why I encourage our Africans over here that are in the revolutionary movement, that are there for our propagation to study here this puerto rican brother was running down african revolutionary history as because the african here in america has had a revolution you look in the 60s and 70s you've heard me say this before when you see the various progressive organizations of that time that was a revolution a revolution had taken place in america and the brother had aspects on it had information about it all the way down to the provisional government of the Republic of New Africa, who I was so flattered and honored to hear him espouse that as being a foreign citizen of the Republic of New Africa and someone who has pledged their life, their economics, and everything, to see the rise of the Republic of New Africa was just totally blown away to see how far that influence um, of the Republic and the work of the brothers and sisters and our predecessors in the Republic had went, that even revolutionary fighters, liberators of other ethnicities, of um, um, other backgrounds, use that as case references and studies. But listen, let's go into, I, wanna, I don't want to belittle the thing. I think, do I have um, Brother Light on the line? Let's see if we can find Okay, let's open Brother brother Light's line. And Minister Light. Is the line open? Let me see. And I want to open. Brother, do you have Brother Light's line? Well, let's go to... Let's go to Sister. Let's go to Sister Bella. Did you open the line? 
Sister Bella. Yes. Yes. All power to the people. How are you, sister? I'm well. How are you? I'm well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being able to join, too. I know that we're taking away from your busy schedule. I was just letting the listeners know, and we'll talk, you and I will get into a dialogue as as we find out which line is Brother Light's line, Minister Light's line. Was just mm-hmm. going through the, um, telling the people about the conference and, you know, just how dynamic it was and to see that all of these, all of you young people are really ready to make a change and affect a change in this society for the advancement and empowerment of, of oppressed people. Let's do, to go into, before we actually get into what it was in the conference was a little bit about, let's go to a little of you. Um, let's explain who you are and how, what made you so consciously aware and begin to be a liberator for the people. Um, okay, so uh, obviously I'm a college student. Um, I'm a psychology major. Um, and honestly, I feel like I'm put here for a purpose, and my purpose is to leave the earth better than I came into it. That's it, plain and simple. Um, but obviously my goal is to help the oppressed people because these are the people who are struggling. These are the people who aren't given the same opportunities in the first place that other people are given to succeed in this world, to succeed in this life. Um, myself, obviously, I'm a person of color. Um, as I spoke on in the conference, I am triracial, I'm Boricua. So for those who don't know their history, you know, the indigenous people of that island are the Tainos originally. You know, the Spaniards came over, colonized us, enslaved us, raped us, interbred with us. Then we had, they brought over African slaves later on, and the same cycle continued. And so the, the Boricuas today, the Puerto Ricans that we have today, we are triracial. Um, not everybody recognizes their African heritage and the Taino heritage and their, you know, Hispanic heritage, but I do recognize all three of my heritages um, because that is what makes me up. Um, I have a daughter, so that's a big part of my, of my motivation, basically, because I want to leave the world a better place for her, and she is a Boricua, so, you know, that's a big part of my motivation. Mm-hmm. So what is- so you'll find over, and I believe we have Brother Light. Minister Light, I believe your line is open now. You hear me? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. How you doing? Okay, we're good. So we had you on. So, it, you know, I want to speak to Bell again on that. Now, to speak to some of the things of Puerto Rico, and you said a tri-racial. What, what is, do you, do you summon, in Puerto Rico, do you face some of the same things as us as Africans here in America face as far as when you say certain Puerto Ricans don't embrace all the rape, their, their complete racial makeup. And over here, we call that Uncle You know, we, we <laughs> have black people who, that, that, you know, practice, they're, they're black on the outside, you know, the Oreo, the whole thing, black on the outside, white yeah. on the inside. But some people who don't embrace their, Afri- their Africanism or their blackism, what, what do you call that in Puerto Rico? And is that, a, is that rare or is that um, a, you know, normal occurrence? Well, okay, so in Puerto Rico, I would say on the island it's a little different because on the island, remember, you know, most of the nation is is Spanish-speaking. They're bilingual, though. Over there, they're taught bilingual in schools from young. Um, So they speak both Spanish and English. There definitely is a lot of, um, like, an Americanized mindset. It's a colonized mind, all right? There's a colonized mindset, right, because we are – we've often been called the last colony. Um, So that mindset is very prevalent over there that America is great and all the things that, you know, America does is great. I mean, up until now, now people are really starting to see now that they're in crisis and America is not helping them and leaving the people to die is, is an awakening. So out of this tragedy, we can actually make a great movement, you know, if we, if we strike and do what we need to do. But there's been a colonized mindset for many, many decades over there. 
um, and it's just a lot of propaganda. So people just kind of assimilate to American culture and uh, they stick to their, their Hispanic roots and they don't really um, embrace the African roots too much over there. Um, here on the mainland, I think there's a little bit more of a woke mentality in the urban cities of embracing your, you know, embracing all of your heritage, all of your heritage, all three parts of it. However, there are Boricuas which come in every shade. I mean, from the darkest black to the whitest white. So the thing with that is that some people who pass as white very easily because they've never experienced prejudice, racism, and struggle, they don't really see the problem, right? We live in our privilege. So them being, you know, uh, phenotype Caucasian and looking Caucasian, you know, they don't really embrace that other side to them because they're not seeing the problem. That's interesting. I think, and that, and that's that's funny. But you know what? You find that too. Um, they go okay. on. Let's ask, let's ask brother like brother like because you were um, instrumental in this and inviting us out to see a part of it. What and between you two, what brought this on? What made you guys say, hey, you know what? There's a need for this. We need to talk about this healthy identity. We need to be, begin to discuss the problems that are facing us, and we need to do it collectively, brown and black. Latino and African uh, American. What what inspired that? Well, Bella and I, we always have debates in the student government office. We always invite people into our debates. But Bella had a conversation with one of her friends, and that's what basically sparked like we basically need to do something about it. So, Bella, you want to see more about it? Um, sure. Yeah, I'll I'll touch on it quickly. So, essentially, you know, um, I try to be very conscious of what we do as a people, um, because Anything we do is used against us. So, you know, I'm very careful of my language and everything like that, how I present myself, so on and so forth. I don't use the N-word personally, but I had a black female friend who I was talking to. She kept using it in conversation, and then I caught myself slipping and using it in conversation. And I just felt really afflicted, and I was like, no, this is, this is something that's got to be changed, not just for myself, but for our people, because it's to the detriment of our people. Um, because I just believe it contributes to the dehumanization of us. And so... I just reached out to, you know, I, I, I wrote a quick little thing of why I was doing it and sent it out to people. Um, and then I reached out to Brother Light, um, as well as several other, you know, black studies majors on campus, as well as several other, you know, Latino studies majors on campus. And I said, let's do this. Let's make this a thing that happens because we have to uplift our people and, and change the identity that we have because we are a target. Um, and they use the negative identity that they've created against us to excuse how they target us. So that's pretty much it. Right. I noticed that when you were talking about dehumanization of the victim, it's easier to victimize the people if you don't look at them as human. And those people who don't directly participate in the victimization, those people who don't directly participate in the atrocities um, participate by their silence. Because when they see us, you know, we're criminalized on television. We're playing, you know, whether it be – movies, through the music or whatever, they criminalize us. And so when these things happen to us, they say like when police kill us or something, they say, oh, they had to be doing something wrong. But I think one of the main questions would be on my line, and and I will open it up for questions if you guys don't mind a little later. But one of the main things on my mind, the conference, the point of the conference, and what, what, what was the objective? What were we trying to achieve? And what would you have liked to seen happen? And, and I'm sure that these are first steps. The journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. So what are some of the end goals that we would like to see come out of these conferences and these dialogues? Is that to me? Yeah, that's to you, Sister Bella. And then, Minister, you can answer. Sure. Um, so, I mean, the first thing was just, again, just changing. We wanted to come up with ways to change 
the image we have in society. I mean, unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to look at it, um, the conversation went on a long time. I mean, that's a fortunate thing because that means people were engaged and they were interested in what was going on. Um, but we really had an action plan in place to actually do effective measures to, to change the identity we have in society. We spoke about, you know, reaching out to celebrities and letting them know, letting our voices be heard, that we don't, we don't approve of them using derogatory terms to our people. We spoke about holding our friends accountable and not letting, allowing our friends to use derogatory terms towards our people. Um, we spoke about finding out our history, you know, maybe even looking into DNA ancestry testing and things of that nature. So really turning it around, uh, getting rid of that negative identity through action, through holding our friends accountable, through holding celebrities and people who, who really affect our image accountable, as well as through actually finding out a positive identity for ourselves um, and, and, and trying to regain that piece of history and piece of culture that's been stolen from us. Right on. Brother Minister. Yeah, so um, when Bella had came to me, she said, well, she told me what had happened. She said she wanted to do this event. So I'm like, I'm down because I don't like the use of the N-word. I mean, I used to when I was younger, but after I understood the history around the world, I didn't like it either. So I said, I'm done with that. So she asked me what did I, like, what things I don't want to call myself instead of that. And we broke that down. I said, it's going to go over a lot of people's heads, but I'm down to educate and I'm down to build. And after we basically speak about what we're not and actually come to agreement what we are, then we could unify because we have an identity now, a linked identity, and we can move on. We can move on and we can start building whether that's group economics or education or social environments, now that we have a um, a linked political identity, then we can um, continue to build. And most of the time, oh. we agree we agree on a lot of things. We disagree on a lot of things, but we all know we we both know that we have to um we have to do with with best for our people. So we unite there, and that's what we always work at. Okay, so so I have a question. There again, you're listening to the People's Black Panther Party. For self-determination, Independence Black Talk Radio. I'm your host, National Chairman Yang and Kruma. We're being joined by Sister Bella Matias. Am I pronouncing the last name correctly? Matias. 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 Yeah. Um, an, an activist, a student activist, or I'm just a freedom fighter for the people, mm-hmm. uh, and also brother minister, national minister of politics, uh, brother minister light. Um, one of the things, though, I would like to know is this something that's that the young people are catching on, was that just an anomaly? Was that just, you know, what I went and saw today and witnessed today with my own eyes, is that just something rare, or is this spreading? Is this becoming contagious amongst young people? Are they becoming more aware of their heritage and what they have to do to empower themselves? I think it varies. Yeah, I think it it varies. A lot of people are starting to wake up. A lot of people are, are woke. A lot of people are reading. A lot of people are building. That a lot of people are in different points about who they are and what they want to do, but I would say, yeah, a lot of a lot of young people are basically looking towards the future and looking to change the way not just our nation is but our planet is. So I don't, I wouldn't say it's an anomaly. I would say it's the future. Right on. Well, listen. I'm going to open our phone lines. Our phone lines are open. If you have any questions or any comments or would like to know more about the event or more what's going on, just press 1. We'll recognize you. We'll get you into this dialogue and this conversation because that's what it's about. Like I said, any anybody that knows me knows I'm about African communalism, and I believe in unity of action and unity of thought 
And this is our opportunity. This is your time, the people's time, to get on here and express themselves and to share their thoughts. Um, but until then, I one of the questions I would like to know, and this is a major question, when we talk about coming together as oppressed people, what would be the unifying factor from black and Latino, um, the, the, uni, the unifying factor between black and Latino, and how do we cross that divide? I, see, I know a lot of times, especially when I come up north, there appears to be a divide, they, um, especially amongst my Puerto Rican brothers and sisters, a very strong Puerto Rican pride. Is, are the Puerto Rican people willing to work with black people and minister like, do you feel that Africans in America are willing to work with Puerto Rican people to cross this divide? And is it a divide that can be crossed where we can find some common ground to face the common oppressor? Go first, uh, I mean, sure. I'll, yeah, I'll take it first. Um, so I think that Right now, I think it has to do a lot with um, political climate a lot of times. What can be done a lot of times has to do with political climate. And right now, there's a lot going on, um, especially with Puerto Rico. Um, But even so here, just, you know, with this administration that we have right now in the presidential office, um, I think people are really starting to realize how bad things actually are. I think people are really starting to realize that we still have systematic oppression, systematic racism, that we still have mass incarceration, which is essentially slavery, existing um, in our current state. And there's, a, there's an expression which it says, never let a tragedy go to waste. And I think if we can capitalize on the political climate that we have existing right now, because it's just in such a terrible state that we can really unify our people and get them to realize that, you know, we have common goals, we're all suffering for the same, from the same afflictions. And just really look at humanity, our humanity, and, and realize that we are each other's brothers and sisters, and we need to uplift each other at this point. Um, and I think, like I said, as far as Puerto Rico, because of the situation going on, now more than ever, I think they will be willing to unite because they've got to be seeing at this point that America is not, you know, this great beacon of hope. And um, so I think time, I think right now is a great time to wake up. And and just last thing I would like to add to that, you know, I grew up in um, I grew up in, in a very white neighborhood, um, and I wasn't accepted by then and by them. And then when I went to school, my junior high school was like mostly either black or white, and very few Boricuas, very few Latinos in the school. Um, and I wasn't really accepted by either side because I'm, you know. I, I guess I'm looked at as like mulatto or whatever. Um, and in college, I'm getting such a different level of acceptance from both sides, from both my Latino sides um, and the black and African sides, which is amazing. So I think there is a level of different consciousness today than there was when I was growing up, for sure, a different level of acceptance, a different realization that we are a part of the same common thread and we do um, deal with a lot of the same struggles. So. Um, for me to answer your question, the, the, I'm going to answer it backwards. You said, was there a divide? I think there is a divide. I can't really measure the divide because, like you said, when social activists, when, when black and Latino um, social activists come together, they can unite. But the masses of the people, that may not be the case. Like there may be some black or African people or there may be some Latino people that um, – they see each other as different. They don't see each other as the same. They don't see each other as equal. So they would be more reluctant to work together. So um, the social activist part, yeah, we'll work together, but 
I don't think that's the same for the masses. I think it can change, though. I think through education and through more programs, more united programs, we can actually um, build and we can actually get the masses to work together and actually get the masses to see that we kind of having the same struggle. But the problem that we have now, I don't think is a new problem. I think is an old problem that spans through our history. You know, you had the dark, the dark slave against the light skinned slave. Then in colonial times, you had the um the European colonists put up different kind of um different kind of caste systems in the nations that they overtook. So like in the um and like say for instance in India, you had the caste system where at the bottom there was the untouchable, the darkest. In Latin America, you have basically the same thing. In the caste system in Latin America, you have the the lighter um the lighter natives on top, and the darker ones, the ones that you can see that have African blood, you have them on the bottom. And it's the same way in the black community. People could be walking around, they could have darker skin than myself, but they could be basically, they could have a colonized mind. They could act and do things that are oppressive to themselves and their people. And they can oppress themselves and their people at the same time. But I do think we can work together, and I, do, I don't think that's, I don't think that's one of our biggest threats, basically. If I could just make one more statement, I do think that um, uh, Latino people who consider people who consider themselves Latino, Boricua, or any other Latin um, culture need to realize that they do have African heritage. That's something that they need to begin to embrace. So um, I think that has a lot to do with it. And um, what Brother Light said about educating is immensely key especially now, if we can educate them now while all this is going on and get them mobilized and galvanized now, um, that would be tremendous for the movement. Um, and I think that we have a, an excellent tool right now because we're in the generation where we have social media, fortunately. So we can reach masses a lot quicker than ever before. So if we can capitalize on that within this political climate, we're capitalizing on two things, both the political climate and the technology we have today, I think that we can absolutely make it happen if we could just reach the masses and, and get them to realize that we do have common ancestry, that we are brothers and sisters, and that you know, and to recognize the humanity of one another and just unite. Yeah, right on. Yeah, but being I don't, I never. Well, yeah, I never really because I grew up in a a mixed neighborhood. I guess you could say I grew up with black people, African people, and Puerto Ricans and Dominicans. So while I was growing up, I thought all black communities was was mixed with Latino people and black people. As I got older, as I started expanding my horizons, going different places, I realized that wasn't the case. But I always saw us as the same people. The only thing different about us is our location, our nationality, our cultures, and our language. But, you know, black is black. If you were, if you were in, you were in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, and that's what's interesting. When you travel, like I travel nationally. So when you travel mm-hmm. nationally, you meet, there's there's so many different demographics. You know, like in Georgia, there's not a large Puerto Rican population, but there's a very right. large Mexican, you know, population. So the whole, you know, the whole demographic changes. And to find people who embrace that African heritage, embrace their African culture, and are willing to shake off um, and willing to want to begin to shake off the shackles of uh, colonialism and oppression, 
is, I think, is a lot of times for us who travel is an eye-opener. And I hope that many other people get to travel because when we deal with a lot of other nationalities, we face a lot of what you just straight nationalism. You know, it's, it's about their people and nobody else to certain degrees. So I think it's refreshing. One of the things, though, I did want to touch on, I noticed the theme, the reoccurring theme was the use of the nigger word. Would you say the N-word? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Or the use of the nigger word. How did that come about? And is the nigger, is using the nigger word that detrimental that it has to be addressed or that it has to be or should be erased from the vocabulary of oppressed people? Um, so as I kind of touched on before, it, it came up because one of my female black friends was using it consistently. And then I found myself slipping and using it. And I just felt like this was a detriment to us as a people. Um, and, again, it's just the reason that I feel so strongly about it is just because that word was a word that was used to dehumanize us from the beginning. Um, so for us to be using that, we're just perpetuating that cycle. We're just continuing that legacy of dehumanizing ourselves. And when we are attacked, when we are brutalized, when we are victimized, it's easier for them to not see us as a as a human being and not value our lives. So, yes, growing up, I used to use the term as a term of endearment, and I don't like to use the word anymore. Sometimes it slips out, but I do try my well, I do try my best not to use the word. Um, if I do use it, like you said at the forum, brother Yanga. I use it in the way that it has been used for a couple of hundred years. I'm like, if my bro's acting up, I tell him, bro, you acting like a nigga, or, bro, you doing some niggerish things right now. You got to calm down. And that'll give him the cue that, oh, I, I got to wake up, you know? Right, right. So so we're talking about this healthy identity. We're talking about having a proper identity, knowing, you know, um, the benefits of knowing our African ancestry and you know, but with that, what comes along with it? Okay, granted, we get the healthy identity. We know we're from Africa. We will acknowledge that. What is the next step of that? Is there political power? Is there economic power? You know, will this affect us socially, culturally? How do you, how do you you as a youth coming up, you two see that with this proper sense of identity? How do you see that affecting the community, and in what way? Should I take that first? Please, yeah. Okay. Um, so one of the biggest things, obviously, like right now is um, I feel like it would affect us as far as, like, preventing maybe uh, so much police brutality, preventing us from being targeted, but also in just um, unifying us more as a people, especially, like, uh, we discussed a lot today, you know, unifying Africans and Latinos and things like that. Um, so taking away the negative stigma that is with, you know, being African, being black, and things like that, I think will help people unify as well. Um, so there is political power behind it because when you have a positive identity, you know, it's it's easier to unify a group. And we do to unify because we have no political power otherwise if we don't unify and come together for, um, for our causes. Um, obviously, in many other facets, we're at a disadvantage. We're at a disadvantage, you know, economically, financially, and all that. Uh, we're at a disadvantage as far as, like, militia and all these things, right? But we can build that up and things um, like group economics and, like, pooling our resources together. Um, that is the way that – that's the only way that we're going to come up into any sort of power. Um, but we do have the numbers, so the numbers are important. And so 
The numbers only work if you have the unity, and the unity only works with a positive self-image, not if it's divided and there's all this negativity going on. So there is political power and economic power behind it, but this is kind of the first step to building that power. Minister, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I concur. I concur with Bella. Um, the identity thing is basically unity. If you identify as the same or something similar, it's easy. It's easier for you to unite. And once you unite, then you can do other things. Like say, we're a college student right now, so we can do small projects around our area and actually expand it throughout the city to our university. Small projects. But when we graduate, we want to practice on even bigger pro- projects. Projects that expand maybe the whole state or maybe the whole nation. So things like that. The first step is unity. You get everybody on mind actually thinking that we are similar, we have similar struggles, and we could fight this fight together. Now, was it was it difficult bringing about these? I know in the 60s and the 70s, we had the black and brown pride. I think specifically coming out of New York, I believe you had the Young Lord Party, which was a very um, revolutionary, I believe, in fact, the Puerto Rican, revolutionary Puerto, Puerto yes. Rican movement. Right, the Young Lord. Uh, much, much respect to the Young Lord Party. So was in this day and time, was it difficult to begin to unite the, the the black and brown, the Latino and those of African descent, those whom they call African-American over here or the African in America over here, was it difficult to reignite or rekindle that, that sense of unity and that um, fight, that, that um, yearning for liberation for oppressed people, or was it simple? Um, yep. So as, as far as um, today's event, uh, we had a lot going on last week. There were elections going on within our school. So as far as this event, um, we really hardly promoted it at all. Um, I mostly began promoting it yesterday, literally the day before, and we had a fantastic turnout, um, especially for one day's promotion. So I think that there are a lot of students and a lot of young people who are very interested in getting involved, which is fantastic. I will say on the Latino side, that the people who can pass 100% easily as Caucasian, you know, um, they're out of touch, I would say, with the struggle. And so they are harder to reach because they've assimilated so much that they're really out of touch with what the struggle is sometimes, and they don't really understand, like, what the obstacles um, ex- that, are, that exist are before people who, who, who can't pass, right, and who can't easily assimilate because we look, what, as, as what we actually are um, So I think that's going to take some time To get to those people Those people are, are obviously going to be harder to reach Because they don't share in the same everyday struggles In fact they benefit From the privileges of the system So those people it, you know, They can still be reached Because the thing is that as Latinos They might look that way But they have an uncle, they have a cousin They have a brother, they have a sister that doesn't So they can definitely empathize because they have family who goes through it. Um, they might be a little harder to reach, but they can definitely empathize. But I don't, I don't think it's difficult to unite, you know, um, the blacks and Latinos uh, for the most part. I think a lot of us go through very similar struggles, and a lot of people are starting to wake up to that, especially in the college sector. People are a little bit more um, aware, a little bit more woke, because you're in the higher education institutional learning. People are looking to find themselves. Um, so they're actually interested. So as far as on the college campus, I would say, I would say it was fairly easy. Yeah, I don't think it will be. I don't think it's hard to get all those people together, but I don't think we'll get the majority 
of the black and Latinos um, in school. Because I don't think a lot of, I don't think the majority identifies that way, but I, I do think it will always be a large turnout. Why, why do you think, let's, 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 let's um, explore that a little bit, uh, Minister Light. Why do you not think, why do you think it would be difficult to get the majority to embrace one another, especially if we have a common enemy and a common disease, and that disease being capitalism and oppression? I think um, the colonized mindset. A lot of our people are colonized mentally, and they don't see the same enemy that we have woken up to. They don't see capitalism as the evil that we, we see it. They might see it as a gift. They they like materialistic things. They like the lifestyle that they're living or working towards, and they just don't see the same reality that we see, even though they might live in it. Okay. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, here's a, here's a tough question. This is for my sister, Bella. And this question would come, you know. Um, so suppose you get the question, how is it advantageous for the black man, the black woman, the African here in America to work alongside with our Latino brothers and sisters. Why would that be advantageous towards the, the, the black struggle for advancement and empowerment? I mean, I think that's simple. I think it comes down to sheer numbers, right? Um, it is a numbers game for us. Like I said before, we're at a disadvantage in almost every other category. So all we really have is unity and numbers. Um, and not just numbers as far as, as population, because you could have a very large population. That doesn't mean that the entirety of that population is going to actively fight in the struggle. You know, you have a lot of people who are not going to get involved. So um, difficult to find people who are actively going to get involved and really dedicate themselves to this and really be about it day in and day out. Um, so I think that we really need to start embracing one another because the advantage of it is actually opening doors to more people that are going to, you know, get down in the trenches with you, put boots on the ground and fight this fight. Um, and it's not easy to find those people. I don't care if you have, you know, 10,000 people in a room. You're not going to find many people like that. Out of, the ten, out of that 10,000, you might find 100 people that are really going to uh, put that level of dedication and that level of work and also that level of belief because a lot of people don't believe it's possible to achieve the things that we're looking to achieve, um, and which is why they don't really put their full effort into it. So I think I think it's advantageous advantageous to both groups because at the end of the day, uh, we're looking for rare individuals to make this movement happen. To be, if we're going to be really honest with ourselves, so. Interesting. You what what about you, Minister? Um, what I would say, well, most of my friends, most people I associate with and I keep close to me, they're down with the Black and Latino unity. Um, for the others that don't see it. Um, I guess I try to mess with their mind a little bit and tell them that if they don't work with the Latinos that's willing to work with us, then they're just going to give more firepower to the enemy. So be strategic right. about the way that you move. The, the divide and, the divide and conquer yeah. that, that thing going on. If right. we don't work together to defeat our common enemy, then our, common, our enemy will win and we will lose. We will be defeated. If I may make a quick comment, too, I mean, yes, you may. again, yeah. we, we do share a lot of heritage. We do have majority of Latinos, and there's a lot of Latinos now that are, that are identifying as Afro-Latino because they are acknowledging their African heritage. And um, I don't know how other African-Americans or how other blacks feel about that, but that's the reality, right? The, the reality is this was not by choice. The reality is is that 
we were enslaved and we were raped and we, you know, we, we didn't have any choice in the mixture that we have come up with. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so we, we, again, I, as I said, I consider myself triracial. I have Taino, I have Spaniard and I have African in me and I recognize all three. I had no choice in that mixture. So we, mm-hmm. we are African and, you know, whether or not um, African-Americans or Africans from Africa or black people in general choose to recognize that the same way whether or not Latinos choose to recognize that doesn't change the reality. The reality is that we, is, the reality is, is that we are a mixture more, more often yeah. than not. And we had no choice in that mixture. And if we choose to embrace those heritages, I believe that, you know, our, our black brothers and sisters, African brothers and sisters um, should embrace it as well because, Again, whether or not either side embraces it, Latino or Black, it is the reality that we have African in us. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's people. Right. I think that has to be one of the most prolific and profound statements of the night so far, and and I think that that's the key. You know, for those of us that are Pan-Africanists, you know, I'm a revolutionary Pan-Africanist. For those of us that are Pan-Africanists and recognizes our African heritage, we have to embrace. It's imperative. One of the key principles in Pan-Africanism is embracing the African and all in, in, in all the peoples from the continent and throughout the diaspora. And that is the only way that we will begin to, I love the answer that I've been getting, and that's the unity in number. That's the only way we will begin to accomplish some things and not fall in the trick of this divide and conquer. Because, right and I like that racial, because if the African here in America is honest with themselves and do, and and does what you're saying. Looks at the fact, then they will understand that their background is a mixture of ethnicities. You know, I would be hard pressed to find one African here in America who has went through the experience of the Maafa, the Atlantic slave trade, to say that their bloodline hasn't been, you know, altered. Uh, you know, right? It's pure. Hasn't been altered. So embracing these different ethnicities, and this is what I love. This is what I found so fascinating about going to when I went up to the university and listening to you young people speak, and especially my um, the Puerto Rican freedom fighters, my brothers and sisters um, along those lines, was the fact that they had embraced that and embraced all of these ethnicities and didn't allow it. It didn't become crybaby form. They did. It wasn't an excuse. Oh, we were raped. We went through this, and we're mixed this or mixed that. But that from that experience, a strong cultural identity emerged and a strong sense of pride and self arose from that. And when you have a strong sense of pride and a strong sense of self and self-awareness, then you begin to understand what is oppressive to you because you know that certain things aren't, for, aren't in your best interest. And I think that that's very important. Let me give the call sign. This is the People's Black Panther Party, um, Self-Determination, Independence Black Talk Radio. I'm your host, National Chairman Yangin Krumah. I'm speaking with Sister Bella and uh, Minister Light. We were at a conference, Black and Latino Relationships and Proper Identity and Use of the N-Word. I mean, just a lot of outstanding things came out of the conference. I have them on the line. Listen, if you want to get into the conversation, press 1. We're hoping you will recognize you. And we exchange dialogues. In fact, let's go to the phone lines now. Um, I believe this is. Oh, I think we just lost them. Yeah, we just dropped off the well. We we lost our caller. But I understand too that Minister, like you have a previous engagement. 
So you have to go at nine. Just let me open yeah. the floor for you a little bit until our, our caller gets gets back. Okay, let's. I'm gonna go to our caller real quick, and then before you go, Minister Light, I'm definitely want to open the floor for you and let you speak. Okay. Area code two one six five three six three. Your mic is open. That's wrong, Black Power. Wings for the Black Power. What's going on, Abu? Uh, uh, everything, man. I'm uh, on my way uh, to the store, but I just want to give a brief history, real quick, and I will uh, unite uh, with the Puerto Rican movement during the '60s. At that time, as I am now, parents, I, I was a parent for them, and we organized a movement against the United Nations. And that was in 1968, if my date correct. And it was moving between the uh, Black Panther Party and the uh, Young Lord Party. And at that time, uh, the brother and sister Harlem was uh, called by the police department niggas. And in Spanish Harlem, the Puerto Ricans were called uh, Spanish niggas. And at that time, it was moving. Yeah, they was called what? We was called niggas, and they was called Spanish niggas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, and uh, so when we came together with the uh, Young Lord Party, very well organized. And at that time, one of the comrades was murdered uh, in the tombs, and they had uh, dealt with because uh, the uh, uh, the uh, the Young Lord community was organizing, as we were organized against the Harlem uh, movement. In Harlem, the Young Lord Party were organized against the uh, Methadon movement that the United States government was given. Brothers, and uh, they was able to go into the hospital to see the floor in the hospital there in Manhattan and find out that Methadon was worse than Haron, that Haron was the king, that Methadon was the emperor, and that Methadon would deteriorate your bone marrow more than uh, 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 Haron was. So the Panthers... And the Young Law Party, party, we came together, we marched on the United Nations, 5,000 strong. And i never forget that the Young Law Party was so organized. Uh, we wore black berets, but in the Young Law Party at that time, in the uh, early 60s, in the mid-60s, they had division. They had a group with red berets, they had purple berets, they had brown berets. And as we were marching, uh, the Young Law Party and the Panther Party Hold on a minute, let me let this uh, brother go off. As we were marching, our uh, song was, not slogan was, and listen very closely because uh, this is why counterintelligence program came not only against the Panther Party, but came against the Young Lord Party, uh, many of my comrades, because at the same time we were fighting for independence for Puerto Rico. Our slogan was we were marching, we were chanting, Black Power for a Black peoples and the Puerto Rican power for the Puerto Rican peoples and third world power for the third world peoples and a power to the people and then the brother chant off the pig and then the sister will chant go left go right now pick up the gun go left go right now pick up the gun black power to black peoples and the Puerto Rican power to the Puerto Rican peoples and the third world power to the third world and power to the people so this movement as like we trying to unite and build back the black national pan-African movement. There was a movement with the Brown Beret, the Mexican, that we was united. That, that was a movement with the Puerto Rican movement that we was that we was united. And this is why I always tell comrades, 
look backwards in order for us to go forward. Once we study that history, do not believe that they are doing the same thing now, trying to uh, trying to disunite people of color. And that's one thing that I love. The brother was named the Ruben when I went to the uh, people church uh, in Spanish Harlem, and it was so organized. When I when we got to one block. There was a brother and a sister would come out of the store and, and walk behind us to another block, and then they would leave, and then another brother would pick us up. And by the time we got to the church, the brother and sister said, oh, we were waiting on y'all. That's how, that's how tight the security was, and they made it clear. When I walked in that church, they had a Puerto Rican flag, and they had a red, black, and green flag. So I was gone. I'm a panther, young brother. And so I said, uh, I see y'all got the red, black, and green flag up in the church. They say, yeah, we are Africans, and the police look up at us as brown niggas, Spanish niggas. And that definitely united us, and it united me, and I've been that way ever since and understood that, and that that unity we did work to try to build that bridge during the 60s. So I just want to share that history, and we march on the United Nations, five thousand strong. The Young Lord Body and the Black and the Black Panther. Right on, right on. So hang tight, man, because we're gonna come back. We want to revisit that because you know we know COINTELPRO attacked um, those revolutionary movements in the sixties and seventies. But you know I'm gonna ask you this, but I'm gonna go to Brother Light because I know he only has a few minutes with us, Brother Minister. But I'm going to go back and ask I'm sorry, say it again, Minister Light. No, I was saying go ahead and continue because he just said something positive, so keep going with that. Okay. Um, yeah, so one of the things, though, I'd like to know, Brother Chairman, is what what do you think came about to cause the division to where we lost that, that type of not just militancy, but militancy and unity amongst Amongst the, our brown brothers, amongst the brown berets, our Mexican brothers, amongst the um, Young Lower Party, the Revolutionary Puerto Rican movement, and ourselves, when did that when did that begin to come into play? I think by around uh, uh, by around 1970, uh, it was in full swing uh, by the counterintelligence program and and. And I want to make clear to brothers and sisters, when I say counterintelligence, I'm not just talking about the FBI. I'm talking about the Army intelligence, the Navy intelligence, uh, the uh, 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 the IRS, and every other agency uh, that works for the government as part of the counterintelligence program to destroy our movement. And I think what happened that we became infiltrated with ultra-nationalists. And when we, when we talk about ultra-nationalists, then... We begin to talk about, no, my movement is more important than your movement, and your movement is more important than my movement, and thus we fell back into uh, our tribalistic our struggle. And thus the Young Law Party was eventually neutralized, the Black Panther Party was eventually uh, neutralized, the Brown Beret, uh, our, our uh, Chicano brothers, was eventually uh, neutralized. So by in the mid-70s, man, uh, we was... We was uh, we was we was at our lowest, but it was well calculated because they they seen the United Nation of uh, our brothers and sisters, our comrades of color, coming together. They seen us marching with the uh, brown beret, 
They seen us marching uh, with the young Lord. They seen us marching with the American Indian Movement, AIM. They seen these nations coming together, and they infiltrated these nations and uh, hoped that they were neutralized, and, and eventually that they did. But it's one thing that they they left undid. They left the elders to tell this to tell this history, and this is what we must tell and uh, and uh, let the comrades know. I'm telling you, and I want everybody to know this feeling. When I got went to that church and got with the first time, even being a Panther, the first time, not knowing my comrades, my Puerto Rican brothers and sisters. And it was so deep that when we got there and changed into our field uniform, I'm in the bathroom changing with brothers and sisters, and nobody was looking at each other because we were there for a mission. That first took my mind. I said, boy, this is serious. Right. I had a camera and a tape recorder, and I got tired carrying it. And the brothers from the Young Lord Party took it. That camera left my sight, but when I got back to the church, it was put back in my hand. Come on now. Right on. <laughs> right Come on, on now. And the right chant. And the chant. Yeah. And seeing the brothers and sisters coming together, we understood that that was a liberation movement, and it was a liberation movement of oppressed people and oppressed peoples of color that was united, and that stayed with me today. And I and I never forget that chant. And I just want to say that chant just one more time, and then I'm going to give the program back over to you and the people so I can listen. But that chant was five thousand. 5,000 or more. Black power to black peoples and the Puerto Rican power to the Puerto Rican peoples and the third world power to the third world peoples and a power to the people off the pig. Go left, go right, now pick up the gun. Go left, go right, now pick up the gun. Go left, go right, now pick up the gun. Black power, and then the chant will start all over again. And the brothers will chant and when they were saying go left and right, they would break down on one knee, and they would target. Then they would get back up and march, and it was well-organized, well-coordinated. And when we got back to the church, we had our feast, and right we went back to Harlem. But leaving Spanish Harlem, the Young Lord Party had that thing so tight down. And we're organized and especially exposed and methodized. Yeah. Exposed and methodized. Yeah. We were dealing in the ghettos and dealing with Heron, and they were sending methadone in and giving us methadone kit, uh, uh, kit over the weekend, and we would take these little kits home and not knowing that methadone. And we had one panther, a uh, brother, brother came in that was Harold, uh junkie, and, uh, and they got him on methadone, and I had the sit one night outside his bedroom door to make sure that he don't leave. And I tell you, I would rather sit in the middle of a highway. Mm. I mean, that brother moaned and groaned and hollered all night from his bone hurting. Man, that's a that's a serious thing. And, and I definitely appreciate you for that because what I witnessed today, and this is why this is a good topic, because what I witnessed today 
on that campus. Like I said, man, it it not only made me fall in love all over again with the movement, but it encouraged me. You know, to see these young minds and to see the enthusiasm and see the just the 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 hunger for solutions and the ideas and the participation of these young people. Listen, let me tell you, brothers and sisters out there who are you know seasoned revolutionaries who have been in this thing for a moment, reacquaint yourself with the youth. Listen to it. Spend time around them. You will be surprised. How miraculous, you know what I'm saying? The the feeling is how it's just a whole change of it's like really is like a, a, a reawakening and eye open all again. But listen, I have a question for Sister uh, Sister uh, Bella. You are you still with yes. us, Sister? I am. My question is with the whole with the coming in with the like you said some of them, uh, some of the brothers and sisters calling themselves Afro Puerto Rican. Is there someone we can attribute? This rethinking or the resurgence of reemergence of this philosophy, like you know, for us, we'll say the Honorable Marcus Messiah Garvey, you know, Martin the Black Nationalism. We'll say Martin Delaney or Brother Malcolm X. Is there someone? Is there a Puerto Rican hero, freedom fighter, or hero that you know brought about this reemergence of you know Afro Puerto Ricans, Afro Puerto Ricans, and the whole pride in the identity of being. Um, uh, try racial and, and, and things of that nature. Um to uh, this, be honest, just some just a natural phenomena. I yeah, to be honest, I don't I don't I don't to my knowledge, there's not a one person that we can attribute to this. Um but it there's just been a lot of discussion about this word called Afro Latino where people are st- Latino people are just starting to recognize their African heritage. Um but I think it's just a phenomenon of essentially like higher education and people kind of digging and kind of trying to find and, and people looking at themselves, like really looking at themselves and seeing similarities in the culture and seeing similarities in their actual physical features and sim- seeing similarities in the foods we eat, in the dances we dance, in the music we listen to, and really examining and saying, wait a second, and then taking a look back and just a lot of scholars who, you know, have investigated and from, from anthropologists to sociologists who explore and look into these things and then it just become an intellectual awakening, especially with um, you know, people who are on the college level and who are really exploring who they are. So I don't think there's one person we can attribute it to it though. Oh, okay, okay. So it's just it's just it's like you said, it's just evolution. It's just a, yeah. It's, it's yeah. A, yeah, it's an evolutionary process. So is this I know you were saying that it's catching on on the mainland over here in the States it's catching on a lot quicker on the island. What do you think that's due to? You know, I think uh, I think it's quite catching over quicker here than on the island um, because I think it's due to the fact that we're more diversified, right? Like over on the island, it's just Puerto Rican mostly. Mm-hmm. You know, there's other cultures there too, but you know, Puerto Rico is not a huge island. You know, um, it's it's a moderately sized island. Um, and, and, you know, most of the people there are Puerto Rican for the most part. But here on the mainland, we are exposed to Americans and, you know, I mean, if they want to classify themselves as African-American or as black or whatever they would like to classify themselves as, or even just other um, blacks from the Caribbean, right? So Jamaicans, Trinidadians, Haitians. And, we're, and over here, you know, because we're so much more integrated, 
we it's easier for us to see those similarities and say, hold on, wait a second. There's a lot of similarities in these two cultures. There's got to be a common thread. And so that awakening comes a little bit faster over here because they're a little bit more isolated and more separated over there, just geographically speaking, just as far as who they live around. So, has on, on a personal note, as personal as you allow us to get uh, on the radio, how has it affected you personally accepting that you're triracial? Has it, has it you know, affected your circle, your socialization, um, family members, anything? Have you been looked at as like this oddity? You know, here comes his, you know, his Bella on some, some weirdo type stuff. How, how has it affected you personally? Um, so, okay, I was born in Brooklyn in, like, East New York, and then later on I moved to, like, Howard Beach, which is, like, a really white neighborhood, actually. Um, but I moved there, like, relatively young. I was still a kid. I was still in my childhood, and I definitely wasn't accepted by them. So from very early on, I understood that I wasn't white, for one thing. Like, and I'm very – you guys met me today. I'm very light-skinned, and I have light eyes and light hair color. But obviously my hair texture is mixed. You know, and I have just kind of mulatto features. Um, I think if I had grown up somewhere else, I wouldn't have had such an awareness and such an identification with uh, my African and, like, black roots. But because, they, because I was unaccepted, uh, you know, by white people, it was made very clear to me that I wasn't white. And so I, I identify with uh, my people of color um, because of that, because I experienced prejudice, because I experienced racism, because I experienced not being accepted so early on. Um, as far as how it affects me now, um, I would say it doesn't affect me that much, but um, I would say that's because I tend to gravitate towards other like-minded people who are very conscious of these kind of things. Um, I, I, do, I do have a lot of debates, I would say. I definitely get into a lot of debates um, with people who – uh, don't see the struggles of people of color with people who don't see the privilege that uh, white people have um, and people who don't recognize these things. I definitely get into a lot of debates with those people. But, you know, I try to always keep um, positive because I don't believe, you know, you're going to change anyone's mind by attacking them. You know, you're going to change a person's mind with knowledge. So I try to come at them from a place of knowledge and enlightenment and just, you know, bring that out. Uh, but I, I am a very strong personality, so sometimes they take it a little wrong. But, you know, we have to be strong. We've, we've grown up through a lot of things, and um, I think our society has forced us to be strong, so they can't fault us when we are. Right. I think that it's, it's surprising, like you said, for anyone who has, has seen this, um, you you are light complected. You're very fair, and your hair is is straight. I mean, I'm just saying all that to say that you could probably could. I don't want to say pass for white, but it would be a lot less hassle not acknowledging. You know, it's probably more hassle to acknowledge your African side than not to acknowledge it. So how you know we understand it affects you personally, but what was it in you that said? Because I'm I'm hearing you move to Howard Beach. Were you raised understanding that you were triracial, or was this something that you came into on your own? I mean, okay, so I was raised with the basic mentality that I was Boricua. I'm Puerto Rican. Um, I definitely knew I definitely knew the history early on, though. I, I'm not sure exactly what age I knew my history, but it was fairly early on. And again, the fact that even as light as I am. In this neighborhood, I was very not accepted. Is that probably the main thing that woke me up to it? That okay, I'm not one of them. You know, as as light skin as I am, 
You know, if we talk about the use of the N-word, as far as they're concerned, I was just a light-skinned nigga. Mm-hmm. Let's put it like that, if we want to talk about the use of the N-word. Um, as far right. as they're concerned, anyone who's not one of them, that's what you are. Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. that's really the main thing that woke me up to it. Um, but, yeah, I did know my history fairly early on. I knew that my ancestors yeah, were Taino, you know, and things right. like that. So. Mm-hmm. But it's okay. So... Okay, let me mute that. And you're, okay. and you're right. You are right. Like, I could have definitely... Uh, assimilating is a lot easier lifestyle, for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I used to, and I tell people this, I used to not go on a job interview without straightening my hair because I felt that pressure. Um, right. So things like that, and, and it's true. Like, you do feel, you know, more accepted. You do feel like you're going to get the job easier. You know, you do benefit from things like that. So... There's, you know, there's a lot of pressure to assimilate because there's benefits in this capitalist society that we live in if you assimilate. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's, it's, a, it's an easier lifestyle, but I don't believe I'm here to just accumulate money. You know, at the end of the day, we're all going to die some, at some point. So I, I don't believe I'm here for that. I believe my purpose to be here is to make it better for not only myself, but for future generations. So it's my right. job to help people um, who come from the same culture as me, which again is that tri-racial culture and, you know, help future generations um, to, to not have those same obstacles and the same prejudices that we're experiencing today. So, okay. So, and I heard that. So there, was there any clear defined fuck it moment for you? Like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm African. I'm Spaniard. I'm dead. What, what's the other one? I don't want to mispronounce it. Taino. Taino. You know, was it, was it, did you have a fucking moment like, yo, this is what it is, you know, and just, you know, was it any particular incident or anything that brought that out of you or was it just out of, I know the history growing up in Howard Beach and we're a little bit familiar with Howard Beach. If I'm not mistaken, isn't that where they killed a young black man years ago or something, ran him in the street or something? Wasn't that that Yusef Hawkins? Wasn't that his name? That's that's correct. That is absolutely correct. So we know that, you know, for any of those people that don't know the makeup of it, and I've never been in, in fact, this was my first time in Harlem today, loved it, you know. Um, but for don't know the, a little bit of the history on Howard Beach, there was a young man, I believe his name was Yusef Hawkins. I, I, I want to say this happened in the 80s maybe. Um, and he was there, and they chased him and chased him into the street. Some, some white man chased him into the street where he was hit by a car and killed. So we already know the climate there. So when she says this is where she lived, I can just, I can only imagine for those in Georgia, it would probably be the equivalent of Forsyth County. And for those people in Georgia know what it is. And in your city, you probably have that little pocket of white people that do what they do and don't let the sun catch you down, nigga type of thing going on. So we know, I'm I'm sure that that played a role in it, but was there any defining moment? Was there any one particular thing that made you say, man, later for trying to assimilate and, and you know, blend in with this society that is not accepting me? Um, I mean, I think it's a culmination, like, you know, uh, coming, believe it or not, coming to the, the university that you came to today was a big part of it. Um, one of the first classes I took there was uh, like a Latin American studies class, um, and the professor, she's Boricua also, and she actually writes books on the African diaspora. So she was a big factor in waking me up to that. Um, and then after that, I was actually um, training 
to do like Air Force ROTC and things like that. But um, yeah, I kind of just veered away from all of that and just decided mm-hmm. that this, this is a struggle I want to fight. Okay, well, I, I feel like it was more educational awakening than anything else. Okay, okay, that's interesting. Listen, you're, you're listening to the People's Black Panther Party of Self Determination. Press one. We to get into the conversation if you like to. Um, we're being joined by Sister Bella, Latino activist, a human rights activist, a, a freedom fighter. Let's just put it like that: a freedom fighter for the oppressed and downtrodden people um, who is. Racial. I'm sure this is a word that a lot of us are hearing for the first time. If you're interested in finding out exactly how that works, and why, and I'll go, you know, to recap again, to reiterate a little bit of why I said that this had fascinated me so much is because this was my first time hearing it from that perspective. Triracial, the embracing of the various cultures and ethnicities that went into making Sister Bella and the other. Um, Puerto Rican freedom fighters that I was fortunate enough to meet today, and it sent me to thinking about our plight and our and our and our plight over here as Africans here in America. And you've heard me talk on our show time and time again about embracing the Maafa, the trans the, the Maafa, the transatlantic slave trade. You know, not embracing that I saying let's be jubilant about it. Let's let's throw a celebration that it happened. But like the sister said earlier, facts are facts. Facts are facts. It happened. There was interbreeding there was rape that had taken place, just all manners and all sorts of atrocities, some just not even, you know, mentionable, that it, it just it, it pains you to even bring up. But they happen. So how can we learn from our brothers and sisters who have embraced these things and these ethnicities and these experiences that happened and have from that developed a strong culture, a strong sense of pride, and still for the most part that I see, still work together. Like I'm learning now that there are some Puerto Ricans that don't embrace this ideology, you know, that really, and, 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 and they're facing what we're facing. We know those of us that are revolutionaries, those of us that ascribe to a black militancy and black empowerment and black power know that we still face some of our older generations and not even older generations, some of the younger generations that have taken on this integrationist mindset that believe in the American dream, that believe if you work hard and, you know, put your nose to the grindstone and disassociate yourself from niggers, you know, and niggers to them being synonymous with all black people who don't straighten their hair, who don't shave, who don't, you know, uh, ascribe to this, you know, American, uh, this Western ideology, and not even Western, just this white supremacist ideology, philosophy, and way of life, then they disassociate themselves in the hopes of achieving success and material possessions. So we're learning that they also are facing those things. But if you'd like to know more about that, more about the um, tri-racial and how that actually works and our coming together and our unifying as an oppressed people and as an African people, how that actually works. And some of the things and some of the outcome of what we're looking for. You know, like I said earlier, man, I was totally impressed with everyone. And and one of the young men that impressed me, and I forget the young brother's name, his brother Khalil, Puerto Rican brother, when I tell you that this brother was running down the history. And this is the, this is the mark of a true revolutionary because a revolutionary 
studies revolution on an international level, not just their own revolution or not just their own national revolution, but the revolution worldwide, internationally. And when I tell you this brother was running down from the Panther Party, and he and I spoke briefly to the side, and he was running down intercommunalism uh, from Dr. Huey P. Newton, uh, Defense Minister Huey P. Newton. The brother went to running down the Republic of New Africa, which totally blew my mind hearing this come from a Puerto Rican brother, because I, too, you know, had, this, you know, the stereotype, you know, more or less. I knew that they were our brothers. I knew they were our comrades in arms and we fighting for president. But I was surprised at how studied and how, in, in, you know, in depth, how deep their studies went into the struggle of the African here in America and the revolution and the revolution of the African here in America. Now, let me ask you this, as far as, uh, Sister Bella, as far as that's concerned, is that typical of Puerto Rican freedom fighters is the study of the African revolution here as waged by the Black Panther Party and other various progressive organizations, something that's normal for um, Latino freedom fighters? Um, I could say I, I, it's a little bit hard for me to say because, again, I try to surround myself with people who are very conscious like that. Uh, Khalil, the, the the brother that you met today, Khalil, his name is Khalil Vasquez. He's a very close friend of mine, and I invited him to come today. Um, and there were, I could honestly tell you, at least two or three other Latinos in that room that probably know history almost, like, just as well as him. One that knows it just as well as him, if not better. Um, so they definitely make it their business to know. Those of those of us who are really, really heavily involved um, in the movement and in the struggle and try, in, in trying to advance, you know, the lives of oppressed people and people of color. Uh, we definitely study our history heavily. But, again, I might be a little biased because I try to keep my circle with people of that nature. Um, he's been in actually uh, involved longer, a lot longer than I have as well. Um, he had a CUNY-wide movement going in about, I believe, 2013 or 2014 that was gaining a lot of traction and a lot of success. And he started at CCNY, and he had gotten it to go QB-wide before it was finally disbanded. Um, yeah, uh, and, and it was a heavy movement. I mean, he wound up getting, getting arrested. He almost got expelled. But uh, he did a lot of great things. And myself, I'm actually just coming onto the scene uh, not too long ago, probably only only a few months in, literally. But I definitely hit the ground running, um, and I definitely try to – do everything I can to take action, action, action. Um, and, and while I believe heavily in discussion and things like that and holding meetings, a lot of people who know me will tell you uh, oftentimes I just work by myself to get things done. Uh, I started a drive for Puerto Rico in my school after the hurricane hit immediately, and we're sending out supplies to them because I, I believe in taking action for our people. Um, but I'm definitely newer on the scene than he is, and there's a, there's a lot of really well-educated uh, Boricuas as far as the history of all peoples, not just Boricua people. So in my experience, yes, but I'm a little biased. So <laughs> That's fine. Well, you, you know, then if, if that's the case, then I can say that you you have a, a very uh, tight circle. That's a good circle to roll in. If your circle is doing sure. it like that, that's a good circle to roll in. Now, again, when yeah. I see we have listeners on the line, and maybe they're just soaking it up, but, you know, put it out there again. If you have questions, if you have comments, concerns, we're talking about Latino-Black relationships. How do you feel about that? You know, the listening audience, what do you think? I mean, 
like I, like I said, to reiterate, uh, I went to this thing today and I was completely blown away, not just at the wealth of information, not just at the enthusiasm of the young people, but also at the willingness to work across perceived racial differences. And I say perceived racial differences. To hear that because, you know, here's the funny thing, because we will have these racial differences, but we all are embracing the continent of Mother Africa. We're all saying that a part of our origin, you know, a part of our being comes from Mother Africa. You know, and, and we're hearing now that that's even becoming a bigger movement amongst our Latino brothers and sisters. So I'd like to know out there for my listening audience, what are the things that's holding us up, especially some of my listeners on the West Coast? I know at one particular time there was a big to-do between the brown and the black. I don't know how that, how if those, you know, the, that race relationship or the, if, if the racial tension still exists as heightened as it was at one particular time, but California, Texas, and all those, I like to know what you think about that. Is it, do you feel that it is advantageous for African people, you know, to, um, to be able to, to, to cross these lines? So these are just some good topics. Let's go to our lines. I see we have some people on our phone lines. Let's go to 470-1444. Your mic is open. Hey, uh, what's going on? What's going on, nephew? Hey, man, I'm listening in. I'm here. I'm, I'm listening so good. You know, I'm involved with a Puerto Rican, so, so you know, I'm, I'm, I'm listening real, real close. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I'm going to just give you real quick, you know what I'm saying, how it is. So it's like, you know, you know me, you know me, I'm black, 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 everything, you know what I'm saying? And you know, yeah. and she, you know, and she Puerto Rican. So she like, I ain't black, but I'm a nigga. You see what I'm saying? No, so, what she mean by that? If she says she ain't black, because that's that's what the nephew, that's what they were talking about at the school today. The use of the nigga word. So she said yeah. she ain't black, but she a nigga. Exactly she what did she mean though. by that? I mean, I, I mean, the only the only thing I really didn't get, I couldn't understand it. You know what I'm saying? But she, you know, because you know when when tragedy, you know, when things happen over here as far as America goes, you know what I'm saying? It's like you either white or you a nigga. So if you don't look at it a certain kind of way, you're not gonna look at yourself as black. Like I got African descent, but I'm a nigga. We share the same struggle. Okay. Like, so she's saying like, in essence, you know she's being treated like a nigga. Right. I guess, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, no different. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, like, and that's 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 real, though. Like, that's a real, I, I didn't even know you was a, I talked to you yesterday. I didn't even know. You don't play, man. You work hard. Hey, man. Hey. <laughs> right. Yesterday I was at the homeboy's funeral. <laughs> yesterday hey, I was man. at one of my homeboy's uh, memorials. And now yeah. I'm up in New York, man. You know what we do? We got to do for the people. So let me man. ask you this, though, nephew. What do you right. think about, do you do you see um, a connection between black and brown relationships? I know you're dating a Puerto Rican. I know you're dating a Puerto Rican sister. But do you see where we could work together in unity to, to um, shake off the oppression, to shake off the shackles of oppression that face us as a people? Do you see us working together? I mean, you know, the only reason, the only reason, the only reason, I, honestly, I feel like it, because we the same. 
You know what I'm saying? Just like our English ain't they English. They Spanish ain't them folks Spanish. It's the same. You know what I'm saying? It's the same thing. You know what I'm saying? But you know, it's just it's gonna take a lot of it's gonna take a lot of it's gonna take a lot of people just putting everything to the side. It ain't that many differences. You know what I'm saying? So if you can put whatever whatever your problem or whatever the issue is, the big difference. You know what I'm saying? It's just a lot of it's just a lot of mental lines. It's just a lot of mental lines. Ain't no difference. Yeah. 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 And I think that that's what, you know, and that's what the sister sister Bella is, is, is basically running across, that there really is no difference. You know, that the same we're fighting the same struggle. And Oh, and that the only way to beat to beat that is for us to work together. That's mm-hmm. for us to come together. Now, let me ask Sister, go back to Sister Bell. And nephew, I'm gonna put your mic on mute so I can, but I'll okay. keep your mic open if you want to come back in. And that's nephew right. from behind enemy lines. Tell the brothers behind enemy. In fact, here's the funny thing, nephew. I think that um, I was just thinking that next conference is gonna be on mass incarceration. So we have to okay. have to come back. And talk about again mass incarceration. Tell the brothers in there, man, behind enemy lines, man, to keep their heads up. We haven't forgotten about them. And when they come home, man, you know that they got a formation to fall into. Absolutely, absolutely. Black power. Black power. All powers to the people. So, um, one of the things that, and man, I, I forgot my main question that I was going to. Um, oh, yeah. Sister Bella, so are there any efforts to take this movement? Off of the off of the campus, and, and to really hit the streets with this, to hit the the the, the lumpen proletarian, to hit the everyday, the working class, and even those below the working class that my man Fran Fanon affectionately called the lumpen. Are there any efforts being made to educate them and to have them embrace this movement of um, unity of oppressed people of color? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so actually, the brother Khalil that you met today. He does a lot of that because he is a construction laborer and he work, and he's in a union. And uh, one of his main goals is to mobilize the, the workers' union um, for the betterment of people of color. Um, he has a lot of great ideas on that as far as even uh, work, uh, mobilizing the workers' unions to collectively put their money together and begin buying buildings and begin buying property and um, have that as affordable housing for people. Um, so things like that, movements like that with like a gentleman like Brother Khalil and uh, other people that are within my circle, we're definitely looking to move towards just take, taking this outside the campus and bringing it to the everyday working class. Um, Brother Light and I are actually working on a school curriculum and education for our people of color because we know the communities of color have school systems which are subpar. So we're looking to educate our own people. So that's something we're looking to do that's also outside of the campus. So there's definitely movement and plans uh, that we're beginning to formulate to move outside of the campus for sure. Man, right on. And if someone – so what could the what – what would you advise the average brother, sister, Latino, African here in America, whatever, what would you – what advice would you give them to start them on their way on this journey? of self-awareness, of unity, and of um, revolutionary struggle for freedom? Um, well, I mean, if they're in college, that's a great place to start, just because 
uh, you have a lot of people who are young, who are looking to expand their mind, who are hungry for knowledge, who are finding themselves. Um, so if they are in college, that's a great place to start is just start talking to your fellow people of color. You know, take a class. Take a class like I've been on, you know, maybe uh, a history of, you know, African Americans or a history of Latin Americans. Um, but if you don't have that opportunity, because let's let's be real, you know, going to college is a privilege, um, and we don't all have that privilege. So if you don't have that opportunity, you know, this information age, you can easily watch documentaries on the Internet. Um, you can, you know, pick up books at, you know, your local bookstore, your local library. But um, definitely I, I would say the easiest way if you're, if you're not in college is probably just, you know, go on the Internet, do your research, you know, start awakening yourself. And then after you start awakening yourself, it becomes time to network and reach out to other people, you know, and, and start seeing where their head is at. And um, also just looking into a previous revolutionary movement would be, like, a main thing because then you can start to get ideas of how to build and, like, and, and really look at the problems in our landscape today and, and just kind of problem solve in your own head. If you see, you know, that a problem is uh, the education system, like Brother Light and I looked at, we said, okay, well, and, and he had put a post on it on Facebook and said, you know, why is it that our school systems, you know, are worse off than any other school systems? And I had responded to him. I said, you know why. The question is what are we ready to do about it? Um, and I told them, I said, I can teach any subject barring physics and, you know, calculus from kindergarten to 12th grade. What are we trying to do about it? And we have set forth start trying to build our own curriculum. So look at the problems, whatever the problems are in the landscape, and then try and just come up with solutions because that's really all it is. It's looking at the problems and trying to come up with solutions and then finding some like-minded people because, you know, it, it is a lot of work for one person to take on. Finding some like-minded people to divide the work amongst, and you just go out and get it done, man. Right on, and that's exactly, and that's exactly where it starts. That's exactly where it starts, looking at the problem. Um, one, of, one of the things, though, too, that you had up there that you were talking about was the real 13. Did I bring my seat? Yes, I wanted, 13. Yeah, please, if you could go over that, because we're coming in the last 30 minutes of the show. Let me give out the call sign again. It's the People's Black Panther Party for Self-Determination. I'm your host, National Chairman Yang Nkrumah. I'm being joined by the freedom fighter, Bella. Um and man, just like I said, went to um, the, the the university, had an opportunity to hear the sister speak, as well as some other very prolific, young, dynamic freedom fighters, man, and activists. It was off the hook. It was off the hook. The energy was off the walls. Everybody was involved. The level of participation and and the questions, comments, and answers were, I thought, very insightful and very enlightening for and to be coming from these young minds. You know, a lot of time we don't think, you know, we hear the young, the young, the young, and that's what it is because I'm, I'm constantly in these streets. So I'm dealing with my, you know, I'm dealing with my peoples, man. I'm in these streets. And I'm always saying the young people, what are the young people going to do, all the young people? And it's almost as if we've given up on the young people. But to have went to a place where there were young people who were committed and, I mean, really committed to trying to find solutions to the problems we faced was a rejuvenation for myself. But during that, I was handed a flyer talking about the real 13. And um, Sister Bella was going to it. She was talking about how we have. They gave us the 13th Amendment, but here's the real 13. So, Sister Bella, if you would, would you go through that a little bit for us and, and you know, break it down and explain a little bit like you did at the um, conference today, please? 
Sure, absolutely. Um, so uh, as you already said, the real 13th is um, is basically a nod. It's, it's, I have 13 tenants on here, essentially, and it's a nod to the fact that the 13th Amendment was given to us, but we really don't have our freedom. We're still, you know, in the binds of oppression. Uh, through mass incarceration, many of us are still living in the lives of slavery. Um, so this is the real 13th. The first thing is independence. Um, now, in, in, in my uh, list here, it says independence for Puerto Rico. But, I mean, that would be for any nation that doesn't have their independence. You know, at, at one time, Haiti didn't have its independence, right? And they fought for the revolution, and they received independence. So all, all oppressed people should fight for independence uh, for their nation. Um, the ending of toxic practices was the second one. Again, uh, right now, Puerto Rico is in crisis. So I started out with what's going on with them because they're being genocided right now in an intense manner. Um, so uh, I don't know for people who know, but... I'm sorry? Yeah, I wanted you to expound on that a little bit. You know, that's 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 a serious indictment and I'd like for you to I like for you to go into that a little bit about the people of Puerto Rico being targeted for genocide. Absolutely. I mean, so this has been going on for to be honest, for centuries. Um for people who know the uh, years ago during the sixties, our women were being sterilized without their consent. Um, without their knowledge, they were being sterilized. Uh they were bombing Vieques. Uh, as a as basically like a practice, the Na- uh, America's Navy was bombing Vieques for decades as practice, and that city wound up with 25% higher cancer rates rates than the rest of the island. Currently, they've been dropping toxic ashes on the city of Penuelas, um, and now that the hurricane has hit, basically the U.S. is not giving them the aid that they need. Um, and I said this at the at the conference today at the forum today. Um, they are giving out four bottles of water and three snacks per family and telling them that they need to make that last two days. Um, the mayor of Puerto Rico recently made a video, um, and she literally, it was an SOS, and she was telling the world, basically, a, a, an international SOS telling the world that, you know, the people of Puerto Rico are dying, and they're not receiving help, and people are – so it, it's it's really a state of emergency – and our people are being left to die, and I think it's obvious to anyone who is conscious and aware of the the practices of capitalism and the practices of uh, the U.S. imperialism that, as it's been and colonialism can recognize that they're allowing our people to die. So it's, it's targeted. It is genocide, um, and it's being done purposefully because they want the land. So. Hello. All right. Yes, I'm still here. I'm sorry about that. Oh. Yeah, so that's, that's for the ending of toxic practices, but not just for the people of Puerto Rico, but for all people. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. I just my, my computer just went out on me. Give me one second there. Let me pull it up on my phone. Right. I have a number. I can help you with number three if you like. I have it in front of me. Okay. Yeah. Can you give me that? I'm, I'm pulling it yeah. up on my phone, but if agricultural. You give me that. Yeah. No problem. No problem. Agricultural reform. Right. Okay. Um, so agricultural reform again. Like um, this was when I came up with it. It was for Puerto Rico, but this is applicable to all, you know, oppressed people and people of color. And the reason being is that you know uh, today basically we all import everything. We're all reliant on the capitalist system. Uh, rather than being self-reliant, you know, we don't produce anything anymore. We don't grow our own things anymore. So agricultural reform 
uh, puts a lot of the power back in the hands of the people by giving them the means of produce, the means of production for their own food. So when you've taken the means of production for their own food away from them, your your entire survival is dependent on someone else now. Your entire survival is dependent on the system of capitalism. So we want to put that power back into the hands of people and give agricultural reform. So we want to uh, uh, basically begin growing our own crops again and, and get back to that. Right now in Puerto Rico, 85% of the food is imported and only 15% is grown on the island. And Puerto Rico is a climate ripe for growing. So wow. that just goes to show you. Yeah, yeah. So a tremendous amount is imported, 85%, and only 15% is grown on the island. So, wow. So, we, wow. yeah, we want to get away from that um, and, and make it – I think it should be the other way around. I think 85% of the food consumed should be grown on the island and maybe 15% imported, right? Not the opposite. So agricultural reform, but again, not just for Puerto Rico, but for all oppressed peoples, we should have the means of our food production somewhat within our own capabilities and with our own control. Um, The next, I have it pulled up on my phone now. Uh, The next one is debt forgiveness and bankruptcy rights. Um, So any, any, Territory that is not a country doesn't have the right to file bankruptcy. Uh, so as, as of right now, Puerto Rico doesn't have the right to file bankruptcy. Um, and they are in tremendous debt crisis at the moment. Um, and it, uh, this is not unique to Puerto Rico. There have been other nations who have gone through similar things because when you're colonized, when you're a territory, there's so many rights that you don't have. Um, so it just puts you kind of in a I – mean, I mean, it's literally the definition of oppression because it puts you – in between two two places that you can't escape from. Um, so so we wanna we wanna have also debt forgiveness and bankruptcy rights, but that would come along with independence. Uh, the next one is dual citizenship, uh, because more, there are more Puerto Ricans on the mainland of the United States than there are in Puerto Rico. So we would be requesting dual citizenship. Um, we fought in every war since we gained citizenship and died for the rights of this country that many of us don't even have. Um, and, and it was touched upon in the forum as well That the reason that they gave Puerto Ricans their citizenship Is because it was World War One, And immediately after we were given our citizenship 20,000 Puerto Ricans were drafted Into the war 20,000 Puerto Ricans were drafted into the war From the island of Puerto Rico So we were really used as uh, I'll, I'll use it as my sister um, Loisa had said in the, in, the, in the conference In the forum We were used as cannon fodder we really were. We were, you know what I mean? We were just there to uh, fill up their army, man. So so we definitely want dual citizenship. Um, mm. Voting rights. Now, this is that, I'm sorry, okay. go ahead. No, no, no. no I'm okay. saying, now, now, what would dual citizenship, what would that mean for the um, Puerto Rican, dual citizenship? What does that look like, and exactly what would that mean for the Puerto Rican? So currently, Puerto Ricans are considered American citizens. Um because Puerto Rico is not – right now it's not even really considered its own country. We are a territory of the U.S. We are a commonwealth. So we're not, we're, not, we're not our own country at this point. So we are American citizens, quote, unquote. However, uh, Puerto Ricans who live on the island are not even allowed to vote in the presidential election. They have literally no say in the people who govern, govern over them. So it's, uh, it's literally no representation. I'm going to need you to say that again so the people can hear. So the people are in, in Puerto Rico, which they're saying Puerto Rico is an American territory. Correct. Governed and ruled 
by American laws and legislation. Correct. Right? And the president. But they don't have a right to participate in the political procedures of America? That is correct. Unless you live Damn. on the mainland. If, if tomorrow I move to Puerto Rico, I lose my right to vote. Just like wow. that. If tomorrow wow. I'm in Puerto Rico and change my address to Puerto Rico, I can no longer vote in the U.S. election and vote for the elected officials that are going to decide the policies that govern me. And I'm born wow. and raised, I am born and raised in New York City. Born and raised in New York City. But if I move to PR, I lose those rights, even though I'm born and raised in New York. Wow. Sister Bella, can that 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 is crazy. That is crazy. Can you hold that and and put a put a pin in that? I always like to go to the phone lines and give the listeners the opportunity to talk. We're on dual citizenship. Maybe this is a question. Let's go to our phone line. Area code three one four four six four four. Your mic is open. Well, she was born in uh, New York City. She's a natural born United States citizen. But did you hear what she just said? If she goes back to Mexico, if she goes back to Puerto Rico, even though she was born in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is not a state. See, the 14th Amendment says you are a citizen of the state and therefore country that you're born in. So she is a citizen. If you're born in Puerto Puerto Rico, it's not a state. Another thing. Right. Dual citizenship. So let's let's say I want to ask Sister Bella. So he's saying that. By you being born in the United States, by the Fourteenth Amendment, yeah, you're a natural citizen of the United States. So you're saying if you go back to Puerto Rico, they that citizenship is revoked. You still wouldn't be able to vote. No. So here's the thing: it's not that it's revoked because even people born in Puerto Rico are natural born American citizens. You are an American citizen even if you're born in Puerto Rico. However, it's a territory, right? If your residence, if your residence says that you like she like your state ID, you're registered wherever you're registered as you live there. If your mm-hmm. residence is in PR, you cannot vote in the presidential election. Wow. Right. And they're natural born citizens too. My father's born in Puerto Rico. My father's born in Arecibo, Puerto Rico. And he's a natural born American citizen. You don't need a passport to come to the United States. You don't need a passport to go to Puerto Rico. You are automatically a citizen, even if you're born on the island of Puerto Rico. However, where your residence is, whether you're on the mainland or living on the island of Puerto Rico, is the determinant factor of whether or not you can vote in the presidential election, even though you're a natural-born citizen no matter what. Wow. Carla, you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Okay. And another thing on dual citizenship, the United States don't recognize dual citizenship with many countries, and especially Absolutely. dual nationality because of this reason. Suppose you go to war with that country. Now, all of a sudden, you have people who are recognized as being a, a citizen of the country that you're at war with. So what do you do with them? Are you going to subject them to what happened to the Japanese during World War II where they were interred, interned? Well, America will do it. I mean, I'm 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 stunned at the fact in this day and time, America is still colonizing people, open blatantly. Puerto Rico is a colony. I mean, I if you're not allowed to participate in the, you 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 you're telling me that I have to be governed 
by your laws and legislations. Your president is my president. This is your territory. But I can't participate in the political procedures. I'm surprised that even just as a freedom fighter and a revolutionary, see, I'm getting schooled on all this myself, that in this day and time, we have a, America is so blatantly colonizing people. I mean, that is just blatant. Well, that's something that goes back along. I think it goes back to the, with the Monroe Doctrine. I'm not sure. And that uh, the Monroe Doctrine was the early part of the 1900s, maybe late ni- 1800s, by which the, that the uh, those territories, these islands and uh, populations that's within uh, the vicinity of the United States have become uh, their possession. And one reason is because suppose one of your adversaries was to uh, want to put missiles on uh, those locations like with the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's mm-hmm. one reason, but it may not be the only one. But I mean, you know, when you when you scream democracy, 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 isn't it democracy the very, isn't it saying that the people have a very right to participate in the, in the politics, in the governing of themselves? Isn't that what a democracy is? That me as the people, I have a right to participate in, you know, the governing bodies. I have a say in that on how we want to be governed. I mean, I mean, you know, how do you justify? Well, let me ask you a question on that, brother. Yeah. Now, you say democracy. I mean, when people, the majority of people that vote for something, it goes. People have a right, I guess you can say, to vote to be a part of or have a right to vote to be no longer be a part of. You mm-hmm. seeing that going on with Catalina in Spain? You seeing that happening today with Kuwait and Iraq? And also, how about the American Civil War, when states mm-hmm. voted to secede or get away from the other states, saying they we don't want to do it anymore? Well, mm-hmm. people are calling them treasonous. So that can work either way, right? Yeah, yeah. But we look at. I love that you use that. But look at the American Civil War. War was fought though. You know, and that's the difference between, you know, we look at, you know, our revolutionary freedom fighters, our political captives and, 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 and prisoners, you know, they fought, but they're being criminal. They're not looked at as revolutionary fighters. They're being looked at as criminals. So therefore they're denied certain, certain um, things under the Geneva convention and all of that, because they're not looked at as freedom fighters. And so if, so you're saying in that sense, Puerto Rico would be in every right to do whatever they have to do to get to gain their independence. Well, I guess I imagine that they, uh, if they wanted to become sovereign, they wanted to become a sovereign country. Absolutely. I guess they would have to go proceed. I mean, who would want to pay taxes? taxes. Who, who would right want to now. pay taxes and and have to be? You're sitting here watching, like in the current presidency, President Trump. Mm-hmm. You're sitting here watching a train wreck and being denied the opportunity to participate. In an alternative, you have to just go with whatever you have to go with the flow. I mean, yeah, but in what world is that right? Yeah, here's another thing. Now, what about the debt that Puerto Rico currently has, which is what about eighty billion dollars? I don't think that country can pay that, and the federal government is not going to pay it. Right. Uh, Look at Illinois. Illinois is, is in so much debt. If you uh, buy a scratch-off lotto ticket, uh, they can't pay you. Well, I think the sister um, addressed a little bit of it by it not being a nation. Then they can't declare bankruptcy. But the other sister, and maybe Sister Bella knew a little bit about what I believe was Sister Louisa was speaking on 
that that debt wasn't their debt. Do you know anything about what the sister was speaking on a little bit, um, Sister Bella? Um, to be honest, the debt being same debt. To be honest, she's a lot more knowledgeable on that topic okay. than I am. Um, what I mm-hmm. can tell you is also a lot of the debt that we have is due to something called the Jones Act. I know I know a lot of people are finding out about the Jones Act now. Um, it basically costs us millions of dollars a year because what the U.S. says is that anything that's imported into our country has to first come to the mainland first, which costs us millions of dollars a year because Instead of coming straight to us, we have to transport it to the U.S. first and then transport it back to Puerto Rico, even if it's passing Puerto Rico on the way. So it costs us millions of dollars annually to, um, to import all of our imports, actually. Uh, millions of dollars extra because of the Jones Act, which has been going on for many years, and it's been imposed by the U.S. So a lot of that debt is accrued because of that as well. Yeah, I agree with her on that. That is that the Jones Act in in her in Puerto Rico's particular case is really really crazy. I think. Wow, it's it's crazy. Listen, out here, radio listen, all freedom loving people. I would advise that we look a little deeper into you know into what's going on, man. We have and 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 here's the sad part because us being a part of this, us being over here. If we're silent about it, if we're silent about it, silence is condoning. We can't remain silent about colonized people. We are people who are being colonized right here in the States of America. You know, I equate a lot of times the ghettos and the hoods we live in is the equivalent of, of a lot of these colonies. They're patrolled, they're policed, not by our police. We don't control it economically. You know what I'm saying? We're manipulated socially and culturally. So a lot of it it's some of the very same things, but I mean, just hearing this, um, this going on that America still has a territory and these people aren't allowed to participate in their own self determination because that's what it's about. Puerto Rican people are not allowed to participate in their own self determination. But Absolutely. of course, to be at the to be at the the whim of the United States government and whoever the um um. The, the peoples, the so-called, you know, you know how I feel about America's democracy. That's a whole other show. But let's just say for the sake of conversation, the so-called democracy, you know, um, they're at the hands and the whims of the government and these so-called people who have uh, 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 allegedly elected these government officials. And, brother, I appreciate you calling in. I'm going to let her go down a few more. In fact, I'm going to leave your mic open. Thank you, sir. Yes, sir. I mean, and I'm going to leave your mic open if you want to uh, – um, Come in again, but I really want her to be able to go through these thirteen. So I'm not rushing you off, but that was a wonderful, some wonderful questions. Since I believe you were on voting rights, uh, right? So that was that was what we were getting to voting rights in the country which they reside. Um, I mean, this is assuming that we we got we were to get independence and dual citizenship. So, uh, you know, if we were an independent country and you live in Puerto Rico, you get to vote in elections in Puerto Rico. Um, but if you're here in the U.S., you get to vote in the U.S. Um, but that's assuming that, you know, Puerto Rico has their own government and they're an, in, they're an independent nation. Um, if, we, if we don't have independence, then they should have, absolutely should have voting rights in the federal elections of the U.S. government because they are affected by it, obviously. Um, so that was that, was that point. Um, and, again, these, these points right now that I'm making, I'm, you know, I'm referencing them to Puerto Rico because there's direct correlation with what's going on, but these go for mm-hmm. any nations that are being oppressed 
any nations that are experiencing these same things. Um, Puerto Rico is not unique in these situations. There are many territories, um, both to the U.S. and other other uh, world powers like France, England, who have had many colonies around the world who have experienced these same things. Um, mm-hmm. The next one, now we're, we're, we're getting away from Puerto Rico into the more like overview. Uh, so Brother Khalil spoke about this at the forum, which is the Caribbean Union, which is mm-hmm. uniting all the Caribbean nations uh, for the sake of power, to be honest. Um, you know, again, you spoke earlier about us having, you know, uniting against the common enemy. Um, and then I touched on the fact that we all do have African ancestry. Um, so I think with those three factors, the fact that, you know, we need to unite for fo- for power, the fact that uh, we do have a common enemy, and the fact that realistically we are all African to an extent. Um, obviously some might have more African than others, but we are all from that same thread. And I think if we look at those three factors, a Caribbean union makes a lot of sense um, from a political standpoint and from a standpoint of, of strength of force. Um, the next one is the new African state, which I'll get Brother Khalil touched upon, and I know you were having conversation with him about that, and you were surprised that he knew about uh, the new African state movement. Um, so I'm not going to touch too much into that because I'm not as knowledgeable as you are or as Khalil is in that arena. Maybe you want to touch on that for the listeners. I don't know. No, no, no. We're, okay. we're, we're fine. We've talked about that on the show before, and we'll probably address it again. Okay, okay, cool. So I'll, I'll keep pushing on. I'll press on. Um, the next one is uh, ending of discriminatory laws and policing. Um, this one is, like, directly aimed at the 13th mm-hmm. Amendment, right? Because uh, the 13th Amendment has that clause in it that you can slavery cannot exist unless, you know, someone commits a crime, right? So uh, the ending of discriminatory laws and, and policing is crucial to our absolute, to our absolute freedom, right? Uh, and the way that we want to go about doing that is new training. So uh, police need to be trained differently when they're going into the academy. Um, you know, they need to be trained to, uh, first of all, they need to be trained on a psychological level. Um, they need to understand, you know, how to deal with human beings in a crisis. They don't know how to do that at all. You know, it's shoot first, ask questions later. They don't know how to deal with the crisis at all whatsoever. Um, so they need to be trained differently. Um, neighborhood policing, because that holds them accountable, you know. You're, you're, you're a lot less likely to, you know, be a corrupt officer when you got to live in the same neighborhood you police because it becomes dangerous for you at that point. So neighborhood policing is definitely another one. Um, decriminalizing addiction, decriminalizing substance abuse, uh, that's a mental health issue, you know. It's, it's an affliction. Uh, addiction is a sickness. It's an illness. And it's, it's treated as a crime so that, you know, we can put black and brown people in jail in mass numbers. Um, and the truth is those things have been installed into our communities. Let's be real. You know, they didn't just magically appear there. Um, they were brought there. So we need to decriminalize that. Uh, as well as um, they use body cam. Now they have the body cam. So we want to hold the officers accountable for the body cams because they have them, but there's no actual uh, protocol for how they need to be used. So one of the things we want to make sure is that they're not turning them off, they're not resetting them, they're not terminating any data. So we want to have policies in place uh, for officers who don't properly use their body cams because we need to hold them accountable, and the people need to have that information available to them. They need to have that data available to them uh, to hold them accountable. So, uh, um, yeah, so ending of discriminatory laws and policing, that's, that's a big one. 
Um, the yeah. next one is post-trauma therapy. Uh, we spoke about this in the forum as well. Uh, obviously, like, our people were enslaved, um, both people from Latin descent as well as people from African descent. A lot of our ancestors were slaves. Um, for those of y'all who don't know about post-traumatic slave syndrome, there's a lot of uh, great documentaries on it. Uh, Dr. Joy Greer, check her out, and uh, it explains to you about intergenerational trauma. Basically, you know, all the trauma they went through, uh, they are now raising the next generation, and they've never got any kind of treatment for, you know, the mental affliction, for, you know, we give, we give our military, you know, therapy mm-hmm. for people. Oh, oh my I'm sorry? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, we, we give our military therapy for people. Mm-hmm. You know, how about people who have gone through, slave, mm-hmm. you know, slave, they haven't had any therapy uh, to heal from that. And so each generation is getting uh, raised by that, but with that, with those same afflictions and it's getting passed down generation to generation. So we want to make sure we have um, post-trauma therapy for our people. Uh, that, that needs to be a, a massive movement for that. Um, Maybe that'll do better. Okay. Is that better? Yeah. Um, cool. No problem. Uh, the next okay. one is revamping the education system in communities of people of color. Um, obviously, as we spoke upon a couple times already, uh, education systems, the school systems in communities of people of color tend to be subpar at best. Um, myself, uh, Brother Light, we have discussed this and we definitely believe this is purposely done. Um, we don't believe this is some kind of coincidence or accident and we believe it's time for us to take those things into our own hands and start educating our youth um, to a higher degree, to a better degree. So definitely a revamping of the education system in our community. Um, coming down to the last, Two here, uh, community nutrition and education of healthy eating. Uh, this is the, the reason for this is that a lot of our people, you know, die from health, health-related causes that are really just uh, poor eating. It's caused by poor eating because we don't, we're not educated on how to properly feed ourselves, how we should be eating, right? So a lot of the leading causes of people of color is heart attack, stroke, yeah. diabetes, um, these are some of the main killers of people of color because we don't we we're not taught how to properly eat, and also because of what's um what's given to us, you know, and what's mm-hmm. affordable, right? The most ex- yeah. the, the the healthiest food tends to be the most expensive, and you know the manufactured products, which really shouldn't even be called food, are the cheapest. So we want to change that and give uh, community nutrition and education and healthy eating to our communities. And the last one is uh, ecological sustainability, which is basically um, looking towards free energy practices, looking towards green initiatives, looking towards things that uh, give us resources we need without uh, relying on the system of capitalism, without relying on the system of purchasing these things. Um, and that's, mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the real 13th. I know I went through it kind of quickly. but No, it, listen. I, and I appreciated, you know, that you were able to run through it. We're running out. Time is so short. Sister Bella, I appreciate having you on the show. This definitely isn't going to be the last time you um, you and my minister work closely together there. You, I'll see you again in Harlem. Anything we at the People's Party can do to contribute, to help out, man, we're there. Get with Minister Light, you know, and I hope to have you on again sometime. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Power to the people. Power to the people. And I have two minutes. I see I have a caller that's been waiting patiently. I'm going to try to get you in, caller, on the last couple minutes. Um, 214, I can't see. I don't have my glasses on. 214. 8068. 8068. Your mic is open. Hey, this is Tequila. Hey. Hey there. Hey, I know we pressed for time. There was so much that I wanted to say. Very good uh, broadcast. Thank you so much, uh, Brother Yanga, for bringing this platform. Uh, Sister Bella, I just want you to know that, you know, I am a a new African woman uh, here in America, you know, just like you, and, you know, um, this struggle is real. I commend you and on your efforts. I commend the people that you work with. Uh, I just want to tell you to keep struggling, keep fighting. It's important that we have these conversations because then we turn our attention to uh, class struggle is. You know, a class struggle is not so often addressed. And uh, if you go anywhere in the world where you find oppressed people, they have that very same manifesto that you just read. You know, I work closely with the Conventional People's Party in Ghana and so many different organizations and uh, political formations in Africa. They all have a manifesto that says what the people need. And every last thing that you read is something that we are all dealing with, we're all facing. And we really need to home in on uh, doing that. We all know that um, this government, you know, this power structure, they're not giving up anything. It has to be overthrown, plain and simple. It has to be overthrown. And it's people's power. It's only people's power. So you have to continue to, you know, agitate. You're using the college campus. I commend you for that. Uh, Keep your propaganda steady. You know, educate the people on these things. And, again, I know we press for time, but I just wanted to thank you all for um, bringing those things to light because, you know, they talk about white supremacy, white supremacy, Mm -hmm. but that's not clearly defined. It's not clearly defined of that structure. You know, we really truly have to understand what imperialism is and how capitalism functions and how the people fit inside of that mechanism until it's only until the people understand how those things actually truly flow that they can, you know, come to fight against it and begin to separate themselves from that very system and create uh, their own when that's in the interest of the people. So um, uh, I unite with everything that you put forth and uh, Yang and them know how to get in contact with me. I'm here at your service, at Yanga's service and everybody who know, you know, what needs to be done. I'm committed to it and I'm willing to work. Right on. Listen, I'm sorry I didn't, that's love. I'm sorry I didn't have you on the show we're present. Call and tune in next Tuesday. More information, more political education. I want to thank Sister Bella. I want to thank um, my minister for inviting me out to the college and Sister Bella and everybody out there for having me. I leave you as I greet you. All powers to oppress people and African power to African people. People's Black Panther Party talk for self-determination, independence, Black Talk Radio. Tune in next Tuesday.
Yo, all I need is one mic, one beat, one stage, one nigga front my face on the front page. Only if I had one gun, one girl, and one crib, one God to show me how to do things his son did. Pure, like a cup of virgin blood, mixed with 151. One sip will make a nigga flip. Writing names on my hollow tips, plotting shit, mad violence. Who I'm gonna body this hood politics, acknowledging. Leave bodies chopped up in garbage. Seeds watch us, grow up and try to follow us. Police watch us, roll up and try knocking us. One knee, I duck. Could it be my time is up? With my luck, I got up. The cops shot again. Bus stop glass burst. A fiend drops a Heineken. Ricocheting between the spots that I'm hiding in. Blacking out, I shoot back. Fuck getting hit. This is my hood. I'm a rat to the death of it. To everybody, come on. Little niggas is grown. Hood rats, don't abortion your wound. We need more warriors soon. Shit from the stars, sun and the moon. And it's like a police chase. The street sweepers and coppers. Sick of kids with no conscience. Leaving victims with doctors. If you really think you're ready to die. We're nine out. This is what nine's about, nigga. The time is now. All I need is one mic. 